Thanks, Rich. Good morning. Okay, okay, we're, why don't you stand back up? Sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. All right, let's just, we're just going to jump right into it this morning. I'm going to read the, our passage for this morning. As Rich said, we're going to conclude the series this morning and uh, going to start at verse, uh, verse 7. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's like underlining, underscoring. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they, may, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, sisters. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would open up our hearts to an understanding of what this means to us, what it meant to them, and how it shaped the lives of the ones who read this letter, and Father, how it shapes our lives today. We pray that our hearts will be open to receive whatever gift you have for us this morning. It could be a gift of comfort or a gift of, of exhortation. It could be a gift of encouragement or it could be a gift of correction. It could be a gift of healing. Father, it could be a gift of confrontation. We pray our hearts will be open to you in a new and a fresh way, and that what would be sensed and experienced here this morning is the power of your Spirit. Father, may everything as a part of this service, the music, the message, our sharing together of the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup. Father, may all of it drip with your presence, Christ's presence here. That's what we long for. That's what we need. May this morning, Father, be a reminder of you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. One idea that resonates through this letter like a thread, tying it together into a single powerful message 
that speaks deeply to every human heart. And that thread is the human's heart cry, our heart cry for approval. From the very beginning in Galatians 1, verse 10, Paul said, Am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? Approval was very connected to other ideas in Galatians, including acceptance, justification, adoption, sonship, and in this chapter, the idea of boasting. Now let me clarify this idea of boasting. Some of you might remember that kid in your school, the annoying kid that was always bragging. Remember that kid? Maybe you were that kid. You know, bragging was one of those things where there was like universal shame for it. But actually boasting here in this world, it's a military metaphor in the ancient world. And it was used prior to battle to fire up the troops. And it pointed to what we have confidence in, what we're relying on, why we will win. You might remember Goliath boasting before the battle with David and Israel. You might remember there's a psalm. I don't remember what uh, the reference is, but there's a psalm that says, Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord. Hey, our horses are better than yours. Our chariots are better than yours. That's why we're going to win. This is the idea of boasting, and that too, as we're going to see, relates to this broader topic of approval and the heart's cry for approval. So let me share four truths about approval that will help us to see the book in a holistic way. Here's the first one. Approval, we all seek it. Look at chapter 5, verse 26. And again, if you're using the Bible in front of you, We'll refer to it quite a bit this morning. It's page 975. Now, Pastor Nick Lashiba did a great job unpacking this verse for us last week. And again, if you circle that word conceited, the uh, ESV and other, the NIV, the translation really isn't that good. Actually, the translation from the King James Version, I think, is a better one. And the King James translates that word conceited into the word vainglorious. Now, how many of you used the word vainglorious this past week? Well, probably not many of you, but the word is self-explanatory. It is, being, it is eager for empty glory. It demonstrates that we have an honor-hungry heart. We have a cavity in our heart. A cavity that was hollowed out, a cavity that was hollowed out in your heart because of a former glory. Do you know that? There's a cavity in your heart, and it's because of a former glory when the heart of the first man and the first woman were completely full, and all they knew was complete approval before God and before one another. But then sin entered the world and broke that relationship to God and one another. And what did sin produce? The Genesis narrative is real clear about this. What did sin produce? It produced shame. 
Now, we often confuse guilt and shame, but they are different. Guilt is feeling bad for something I did. Shame is feeling bad for who I am. It is a sense of disapproval. That something in me is defective. That I am not enough. Shame is part of our brokenness. It is part of our human condition. And at the same time, we still carry in our consciousness the haunting memory of the garden. Our former glory. And that is why human beings today still, and why you and me still long for glory. But according to this verse, our bar is way too low. We seek for an empty glory. Our honor-hungry hearts impel us to search, and so we search for stories to be a part of that will bring approval, that will validate us. When I was a teenager, my story was competing in sports and girls. That was my boast. That was my confidence. That was my identity. That's what I wanted you to know about me. Either my athletic exploits on the field or bouncing from one girl to another trying to find that perfect match. and The, the ever-elusive sense of approval that I thought I would gain from, from a woman, from that relationship. So that's the first point. We all seek approval. It's in us. Secondly, under approval, God has made it available to anyone. This is a, certainly a part of the message of Galatians. God has made approval available to anyone. Turn back to chapter 3. And the end of chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. Paul writes, now that faith has come, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, and again, that implied sons and daughters, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ had a, have put on Christ. Therefore, the implication is there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and you are Abraham's offspring. We become sons and daughters of God, not through belonging to a certain group or class. No ladder in the Christian faith, no ladder must be climbed from one caste to another, such as in Hinduism. In the Christian faith, there are no rules tied to one ethnic identity that must be followed, such as in Judaism. So there is no ethnic identity, no racial group, no gender, no nation has a built-in superiority on gaining favor with God. God's approval, his salvation is universal, available to anyone. And again, Paul referred here back to the promise of Abraham. And what was the promise to Abraham? That all the families on earth will be blessed. Christ came for the whole world. Christ did not just come for America. He did not just come for Western Europe. He came for all, and he died for all. Our friend last week, Robbie McAllister, um, stirred our hearts 
And he shared about the Great Commission. And this is why we as a church are engaged globally. Because the gospel is universal and available to anyone. Just by the nature of being Christ followers, we see the world differently. Okay? So the second point is is approval. God has made it available to anyone. Here's the third point. Spend a little bit more time on this one. And it's a little paradoxical. It's a little, you know, wow, anybody can accept this thing. It's available to anyone. It doesn't matter. But now look at this third point. What's also very clear from the book of Galatians is that after you have become a Christian, don't keep pursuing it, approval, from the world. You follow that? Part of the story of Galatians is don't keep seeking approval from the world. Now, Galatians 6.14, we read this. Paul said, my only boast, I don't boast in any other thing. Now, remember how we, how we defined that? My confidence, my validation, my approval, my justification, my glory. I don't find anywhere except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is Paul saying here? I think he is saying that the world no longer has a hold on me. I owe it no allegiance. It is powerless over me. I don't need its approval. I don't need its acclaim. I don't need its validation to feel human and to feel alive. If I am perceived to be a loser in the world, that is not destroy me. If I'm seen as a failure or wasting my life because I have put God first, it does not create in me some unhealthy drive to attain success as defined by my culture. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.12. Paul dealt with this same idea and this same theme with the Corinthian church. I'll just wait a moment for you to get there. It's page 966. What had happened in the Corinthian church is they dragged all the worldly symbols, the cultural symbols of success, and they dragged them into the church. And it just was ugly. And so in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast. Here's this word again. Or take pride in giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast who find their confidence, who find their validation in outward appearance and not what is in the heart. You see, the symbols that God embraces, the success that God gives is often hidden and not apparent. It is not easily identifiable. It is harder to identify. But it is birthed and it resides in the human heart. So like in Corinth, when the church seeks approval from the world, it becomes something weird. It becomes something monstrous. It it loses its moorings. It's all misproportioned and out of sync. 
It's as if it has arms growing in wrong places, eyes that are missing, and legs that swing in the wrong ways. I never watched those replays, by the way, and NFL games when they show those NFL games when the leg swings the wrong way. I never watched those. But that's what the church is like when the church is seeking the approval of the world. Now, I, I want to say before I give, I want to share a couple of examples here. And if you know me, you know that from the stage here, I am really reticent to be critical of a church. I really am reticent to do that. And we certainly, I don't know motives. Or I don't have, don't have special, uh, you know, special insights or an understanding of how people uh, uh, emote. But certainly Paul here, in order to clarify what is authentic and real expression of the church of Christ, he must call out that which isn't. And, um, and so when we look at some of the outcomes of what the church is and has become, we see this drift, we see this astray from, and we see what we see is the culture impacting the church, the culture holding sway, the church dragging the culture's symbols of success into its corporate life together. For example, when the church allows the culture to squeeze its, uh, into its mold, Doctrine itself, what the church believes, is up for grabs. It's moldable. Long historic commitments are reshaped in order to fit the times. Now, the argument for change is all, and the argument for accommodation is often done from an appeal to evangelism. How can the church grow? Or how can we make Christ attractive if we have these beliefs that are seen as regressive or even repressive. When we change doctrine, however, only to fit in, to accommodate, we lose our salt, we lose our voice, we lose our witness. Another example. Some churches in our age are obsessed with being culturally relevant and being hip in order to fit in. Or they liken the success of the church to be equated with customer service. If we have good customer service, then we're succeeding. When either of these things happen, the church loses its ability to be critical and to be prophetic of the way we actually live. When this happens, all the church is, all it does is that people come together on a Sunday morning and we all reinforce the way we're living. We're all, we all say, hey, we're very comfortable. We're doing a good job. We're all comfortable with who we are and where we are. And we lose any sense of a prophetic edge. This can easily happen. In these cases, the services of the church morph into nothing more than entertainment. The goal of messages is positive self-esteem or daily inspiration. The boast is not to die with Christ. The boast is to feel good about yourself. You can do anything you put your mind to. Tomorrow will be a better day. These churches are consumer-driven, meaning they exist. They exist. Their purpose is to help you gain and to acquire your definition of success, whatever that is. Good moral kids, respectable values, 
success in your career, feeling better about yourself. We exist to help you be successful. Again, adopting the cultural and the world's values of what success is. You know, we were, just a few weeks ago, we were in Nuremberg, Germany, my wife and I. And uh, what, a, what an amazing place Nuremberg is. So much history there. Many of you know that's where the Nuremberg trials took place, the first time in the history of the world that there was an, actually an international trial, and the Nazi war criminals were prosecuted. And, um, and we had a chance to stand. Do you, do you remember from the movies, this unbelievable mass rallies that would take place in Germany and Hitler's up there and everybody's in the crowd is going, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, and just thousands of people. I'm sure you've seen those movies and those images. So that's in Nuremberg. Nuremberg was the place where the Nazi party rally took place. And so uh, part of our tour included seeing this. It was really kind of, it was really chilling to be there and to think about what took place in that, those very grounds. And I'll tell you what was really strange. This is the honest truth. And our poor tour guide, he was just like silent for a moment. So like while we're at the, we're, we're at the base of that, you know, the, there's a real tall area where Hitler would walk down on. It's a huge, you know, it's like a huge staging area, uh, four or five stories high. And so there were some people up there and you could see them up there. And I'm not, this is not a lie. Like the guy standing up there, he's just a tourist like us. The guy standing up there had the exact Hitler mustache. It was so strange. And our tour guide was speechless like for a minute. Like, oh my goodness, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Anyway. You know that in the 30s, you know that the vast majority Almost all of the German churches were swept into the Nazi movement. They parroted in the church and they echoed in the church the Nazi, Nazi nationalistic vibe. The churches fell right into that. They were blinded. They did not have the understanding to see what was going on. And you would go to your church on Sunday morning and Hitler's agenda and Nazism and National Socialism was reinforced. All except for about a thousand churches. There was about a thousand churches called the Confessing Church. You might know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's the most famous person. Martin Niemöller was the other very famous person. About a thousand churches stood against Hitler. And actually, if you know a little bit about history, that is the only entity in Germany that stood against Hitler was the confessing church. The academic world, the media and journalistic world, and the vast majority of the church got swept up into and echoed and parroted Hitler's message. It was only the confessing church in Germany and some scattering of individuals that did not get swept up into that regime. The church has to hold on to scripture in order for it to provide a counter story and a counter narrative to what is happening around us. And again, it is holding on to Christ and it is holding on to his word that we must do. You know, other times a church, other times a church seeks success by winning the approval of its own, of its religious community. 
In these cases, the church is driven more by tradition or by arbitrary rules or the applause of Christian peers. This was the case in Galatians. Look at verse 13. This is what Paul is getting at here. Chapter 6, verse 13, he says that, that these guys who were trying to lead you, and you can smell it, it's, it's as bad here, they don't even keep the law, and they're trying to get you to do it. And they don't keep it themselves. And so Paul unmasks the motives of these leaders that seem so noble and so virtuous. They were really in it for themselves. It was really about their power as leaders. It was really about gaining a few scalps on their wall. It wasn't really about helping them know Christ. Again, as a reminder, these were Jewish Christians. They were Christians, but they were also Jewish. And they were coming into the church, and they were insisting that you must be Jewish first before becoming a Christian. And it was this concept that Paul so vigorously opposed and stood against. These leaders were much more interested in feeding their ego, in exercising power over others, and gaining a spiritual scalp rather than helping people experience God. This is what happens when Christian leaders are more interested in the applause of other Christians than they are of God. It can fall into a kind of narrow legalism and again, missing the entire scope of what God wants. All this can happen. All of this can happen when a church is looking for approval from the world. It becomes distorted and it has lost its moorings. Okay? So as a church, we're called to seek the approval of God and not the approval of the world. Okay? It's also true for individuals. And what is so impressive here about this passage is that how Paul understood the meaning of the cross. Paul understood the point of the cross. See how he contrasts himself to the Jewish leaders. Paul doesn't say, I boast in my converts. I boast in the number of churches I started. I boast in how spiritual I am. He says, I have no other source of glory except in the cross. Now, think of how strange that is. Now, we don't think it's strange today because, you know, we all wear a cross on our neck, a nice gold cross, and it's kind of cool. It's really accepted. It's great. But in the ancient context, the cross was a symbol of execution. The cross was a symbol of torture. The cross was a symbol of losing. The cross was a symbol of humiliation and defeat. The cross was not a symbol of strength, but of weakness and vulnerability. And when Paul says he boasts only in the cross, he shows he understands it. And as believers, it's so important. And I'm I, frankly not sure if we, some of us get it. What the significance of the cross is if we are to follow Jesus. We have to understand why the cross is so offensive to so many. You know, in the days leading up to Jesus' death, you might remember that Jesus was forewarning his disciples about his death and crucifixion. And in one moment, Peter, who it blew his paradigm, 
Peter had a paradigm where Jesus would usher into the king, usher in the kingdom. He would bring about, Jesus would bring about unprecedented days of prosperity and unparalleled glory for the nation of Israel. And here he is talking about suffering. And Peter says to Jesus, that'll never happen to you. But Jesus didn't come back with a nice suggestion. He said, Peter, you're completely on the wrong side of the equation. Peter, you are on the wrong team. Look at the words that Jesus said to Peter, because he did not understand the cross. He said to Peter, you are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he says then, in the next verse, or earlier in the verse, he says, get behind me, Satan. In that moment, Peter was echoing the interest of the wrong side and the wrong team because he did not understand the cross. We must wrestle with why the cross is rejected and how it confronts us to our blind ambition for worldly success. Why is the cross rejected? Let me share a couple of reasons why the cross is rejected. One is that many simply find the idea that God would kill his son revolting. Some revolt at the very idea of the notion of a blood sacrifice. Uh, famous atheist Christopher Hitchens said this, I find something repulsive about the idea of vicarious redemption. I would not throw my numberless sins onto a scapegoat and expect them to pass from me. We rightly sneer at the barbaric societies that practice this unpleasantness in its literal form. I have a quote here, but I'm going to go on. I've got, there's another quote by Sam Harris, says essentially the same thing. And this sort of understanding is very common. And it's been this way for many years, many in the past. Could not wrap their heads around. How can you call a God loving who allows his own son to be crucified in a bloody, gory mess? The gospel offends in other ways. The gospel says that it tells, the gospel tells a respectable, middle-class, law-abiding person who has worked hard his whole life that in the eyes of God, that without the cross, without Christ, he is in no better spiritual condition than the prostitute or the drug trafficker. That's offensive. Are you telling me that I am no better than that homeless person drugged out, lying in the gutter, that we're on the same moral level, that I need the same amount of grace that he does? This is offensive. The gospel flattens us out in a way that's hard to understand. By the way, here's a little freebie for you. Um, just a little detour for a moment. It, it connects, but it's a little different. I, I love how grace changes us. I love how when we get this, it changes our view of others. One of our members here, Alan Nash, got involved with a ministry called Kairos, helping imprisoned men. And uh, this is a little excerpt out of his story after being with 42 prisoners here a couple of months ago. Alan wrote this. He said, in the days leading up to going to prison, I was filled with nervous excitement. I was nervous about being around 42 hardened criminals, nervous about my ability to evangelize, but excited, excited to be a vessel to win souls for Christ. 
Every morning as we entered the prison, we would ask ourselves, does what I'm doing glorify God? If the answer was no, then we'd leave our baggage at the gates and we entered. I have to be honest. When I saw the, the, the uh, 42 men here, I only saw them as prisoners. However, as the weekend progressed, I quickly realized that these were my brothers in Christ. This is how the gospel changes our very view of ourselves and our view of the world. It radically changes us. Now, finally, one other area that's hard for us to overcome is the cross says, the cross says Jesus' blood is needed for your Hindu neighbor. Jesus' blood is needed for your Buddhist neighbor. That same person to whom you've experienced nothing but kindness and you've seen nothing but religious devotion, the cross says that Jesus died for them and the cross says that they need forgiveness. Does it matter if you're Catholic, Protestant, Greek, Orthodox, Buddhist, or Hindu? Religious devotion does not gain us favor from God. That's a hard message. It's often misunderstood. And for many, it puts the cross and it puts the gospel way out of step with our culture. The cross is offensive. And we must wrestle with this. You must wrestle with this. We have to embrace the meaning of the cross. And I think this is what Paul did. And why Paul could say, this is my only boast. This is my only confidence. Okay, the fourth area, the last one. Fourth area of approval is that when you experience God's, you know you have found the real thing. Like I said, we're made for glory. When you experience the approval of God, you will know you've discovered the real thing. You will know this is what you've been searching for your entire life. We learn from chapter 4 that it is the Holy Spirit and it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that helps us experience that assurance, that certainty, that inward existential experience that the love of God is not a supervisor to an employee, the love of God is not a master to a slave, the love of God is a father to a son or to a daughter. I have been on a, a, a journey of approval my entire life. That journey certainly accelerated when in my mid-30s, my father, my earthly father, was able to express to me uh, for uh, the first time his pride in me and his love for me. But that alone wasn't enough. And that may be something that you've never experienced or never will experience. But the hope today is that the Holy Spirit, who gives us access to the mind of Christ, who gives us access to the heart of Christ, who gives us access to the love of Christ, He is working in you. It's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural phenomena. You cannot muster it up. You cannot make it up. You cannot look inside and find it within yourself. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to make your experience of God certain 
inward, existential, and real. This is what Galatians 4 and Romans 8 clearly teaches. And he is working in you to convince you and to persuade you that God has a love for you like a perfect father, a perfect father, a good father, such that, such that you can actually call him Papa. That's what the word Abba literally means. It's an intimate phrase, an intimate term. So intimate, the Jews, out of a misbalance, wouldn't use it. The Jews had such a distant, faraway view of God, they would not use that intimate term. Jesus and Paul here introduces it, saying, no, the Spirit works in you so that you can have an intimate relationship with the Father and a certain existential, real understanding of His work in your life, Him assuring you that the Father's love is a Father's love. God's love is a Father's love, a paternal love. And it is the Holy Spirit that does this. And the way for you to grow in the Spirit and to access the Spirit, Paul says it here. He says it earlier. So in the Spirit. So in the Spirit. Invest in the Spirit. There are two ways that we grow, and it's very important for you to keep these distinguished in your mind. This is a big part of the message of Galatians. The primary way that we grow, the first way that we grow, the first way that we access the life of the Spirit is by believing. It is by faith. It is by believing and accepting the promises of God. It is not by anything you do, but rather by believing and accepting that who, who God says you are, you are. And then the second way that we grow is that we begin to open up our heart to the things of the Spirit. We do that by walking in the way of Jesus. We can't become like Jesus unless we walk in his way. And we engage in the spiritual disciplines. We attend church. We attend community or life groups. We have daily scripture reading and daily prayer. We practice things like fasting or solitude fellowship, the spiritual disciplines. And as we develop the spiritual disciplines in a daily rhythm of our lives, we sow in the Spirit. And it allows our hearts to be open to God so the Spirit can pour into us and the Spirit can speak to us and the Spirit can assure us that He loves us like a father loves a son, like a father loves, like a, like a, like a father loves a daughter. This is the way of Christ. This is the rule of Christ. This is the pattern of Christ. We don't get grace or the Spirit because we do all these things. We do these things in order to get our hearts in a place to be prepared to receive the work of the Spirit in our lives. This has been a main, major theme. This idea has been a major theme in the book of Galatians. Okay. Um, band, wherever you are, come on up, come on up. We're going to move towards communion here, but I want to finish with a final challenge and a final idea. I've, I've shared maybe some hard things this morning about the cross and about what your vision is for your life. Jesus said, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. 
What he meant there that if, if the first principles in your life are good and right, then all the succeeding parts of your life are going to follow from that. Why did Paul find his only boast in the cross? It began with Paul's understanding that Jesus, Jesus the Christ, was all in. He had to get that point. To understand the Christian life, we have to grasp, we must understand that Jesus was all in for you. Not halfway, not straddling fences, no guarded neutrality, no if. Jesus was all in. He was totally committed. He was not neutral in his love for you. In the cross, through the cross, Jesus showed that passivity will not pay your debt. Through the cross, Jesus showed that negotiation will not pay your debt. Through the cross, Jesus said that academic exercises or theoretical discussions will not pay your debt. He put his whole life on the line. He was all in for you to pay your debt. And now, not because you have to, to earn his love, but no, because you have his love already as a son or daughter, because you are secure in his love. Do you know what he asked back from you? He asked the same thing. He asked you to be all in. Friends, to follow Jesus is to abandon forever the wild pursuit of the symbols of success that the culture gives. To follow Jesus is to abandon forever this definition of success that only the world and the culture offers. It is like that song you may have sung as a child, the cross before me, the world behind me. There are moments in our lives, friends, when guarded neutrality must be abandoned. There are moments in our lives, and they, can, they could be crisis moments, they're often crisis moments, when a decision must be made. You can no longer straddle the fence. You can no longer straddle two kingdoms. To not make a decision for Jesus is to reject him. To not make a decision for Jesus in the end is to reject him. Jesus demanded loyalty. Jesus requires loyalty. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. And so what I'd like us to do right now is, Nick's agreed to do this song at the last minute. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I'd like you to think about this as we sing this song. I'll come back up and, and lead us in communion. But what I would ask you to do here this morning, if you're not yet a Jesus follower, I'd ask you to think about this morning saying yes and getting all in. This could be the morning that you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus, the cross before me, the world behind me. I'm all in, Jesus. You should know that if you've never made that commitment, you ought to know just honestly, for us who've been at it for a long time, we wane in our commitment, don't we? <laughs> we go up and down, don't we? And we need moments 
of fresh grace and fresh wind where the Holy Spirit blows on us. Not me, not my message, but the Holy Spirit blows on us. Opening up a season of new commitments and recommitments. The world behind me, the cross before me. Let's, let's, let's stand, we'll sing this song, and then I'll, I'll come back up.